Hey everybody, Sam Ellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I'm grateful for you listening to the 59th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. 59, I think, is how many more at-bats with runners in scoring position the Royals will need to win a game. <sighs> okay, uh, the goal this week, the goal every week is to be worth your time. This week we're going to do that with a Travis Kelsey appreciation that I think you'll be interested in. Questions about Major League Baseball's weird uh is that the word we're going to use rules enforcement jorge soler and hunter dozier the size of sports crowds in weird places to see a fight uh the bonus segment is with royals pitching coach cal eldred who i know a lot of you have been wanting to hear from or about okay uh let's do this i want to talk to you about travis kelsey the the chiefs did their otas this week and look like i genuinely believe the chiefs are the best and most interesting team in the nfl and i still don't particularly care about OTAs. Like, I think it's a good sign that they had strong attendance when a lot of teams didn't. I think, you know, high vaccination rate sends a good message to the public, but also as a legitimate competitive advantage. Um, but I also know it's sort of like barely football at this point. And, you know, when's the last time you heard anybody say like OTAs didn't go well or, you know, this guy or that guy is behind schedule, um, right? Like, I just don't think we really get a lot out of this. But there are some interesting things that come out, like usually subtle and something hit me this week uh, that I want to highlight here. Travis Kelsey gave uh, an <laughs> unintentionally hilarious, but also like objectively hilarious answer that I, I think also says a little bit about who he is at this point in his career. Like, so let's set the scene. Like, you may have seen this quote recently from from Kelsey that made the rounds. Um, he was in Cleveland, where he's from, where he grew up, for uh, a charity event, and of course, somebody asked him about the Browns, and he said a lot of nice things about his hometown team. And then uh, the part that, that people grabbed onto is he said they are, quote, neck and neck with the Chiefs, end quote. Um, look, like, <laughs> it's June. Uh, there's not a lot else going on, you know, at least not until Patrick Mahomes says 20 and 0. So the quote got, like, some energy. But it did make me curious. So, like, anyway, let's, let's just play the question that I asked Travis and his answer here. Hey, uh, Travis, this is kind of related to what Adam just asked you about actually, but um, I know the answer is supposed to be like one day at a time and all that, but um, you look around the league, um, who do you see as sort of the biggest competitor, rival or threat um, in the AFC to get back to the Super Bowl? I mean, we got, we got three really good teams in the division. I'm not, I'm not going to look past anybody in our division. Um, if you look at the entire AFC um, outside of the, the Raiders, Broncos and Chargers, um, I mean, obviously the Browns, the, the Ravens, uh, the Titans just got another huge piece to their offense that could that's that's very interesting, um, and and who knows who's going to show up? I mean, there's a lot of good young teams like a Miami, um, and and it's just you know you got to be ready. You got to be ready for it all. You can't forget about the Bills. I mean, there's teams all over the place that can come up and, and get a win, and you just got to respect them all and and uh, and go to work every single week. So just for the record. Um, there are 15 teams in the AFC that Kelsey could have named as the single biggest threat for the AFC spot in the Super Bowl. And he named eight of them. More than half. Um, I, I don't know what I was expecting, like, exactly. And Kelsey probably answered the question the way he was supposed to. But And I know sometimes I think way too much about this stuff. You know, it's obviously an answer, like, intentionally structured to give as many other teams credit as possible, to be, you know, presented with humility, you know, even if we know the real answer is something different. But he, he's just at this point in his career now where he's not going to say anything that could be interpreted negatively by anybody else. And it, it just really got me thinking about who Kelsey is and who he's been. And, you know, at the risk of being a prisoner of the moment, like, I really believe this is true, that, that Travis Kelsey has grown 
as much as any athlete we've ever seen in Kansas City. Does that sound like hyperbole? Maybe. I don't know. But I really mean that. Like, he's not going to be as accomplished in his sport as, like, you know, George Brett or Tom Watson are in theirs, right? Like, he's not the biggest star in football like Patrick Mahomes. You know, I, I do believe that he'll be in the Hall of Fame someday. I, I really do believe that. But the Chiefs, you know, like any team that's been around for a while, guys, guys have done that, you know, including one at his position, right? But, like, just for a second, step back and think about where this thing began. Kelsey was a third-round pick. In, in Andy Reid's first draft in 2013. And, and even that was considered a bit of a gamble. Like he had a sort of like uneven history at Cincinnati, uh, kicked off the team at one point, you know, kind of seen as this like character risk um, to use the jargon. And he was also old for his draft class and basically missed the entirety of, of his first season. I've mentioned this before, but you know, throughout that entire rookie year, there were people in the front office, people who wanted him drafted, um, who, who were in on the decision. And they weren't sure if he wanted to play. They weren't sure if he was tough enough to get through an NFL season. Um, you know, then the next year he started to get the production going. You know, but those character questions popped up. You know, like uneven work habits you'd hear about sometimes. And, you know, obviously there was just like this string of just like silly and immature, unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. Do you remember the time like he was basically suspended for the first quarter of a game in San Diego? I have no idea what happened. The Chiefs really kept that one secret. But <laughs> me and Therese always joked about that being like the Tijuana game. Uh, that He just came <laughs> came back uh, like from the hotel too late or something. But anyway, th- there was a time he had an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty in four consecutive games. He got kicked out of that game against the Jaguars in 2016 for like, you know, throwing his towel like a penalty flag, which was hilarious, but also probably something you don't want your your guys doing. Essentially called out the coach's play calling after a playoff loss to the Titans. You remember that? And none of that stuff seems like that long ago, right? Like, and, and I'm looking at his football reference page and he's been called for one, one unsportsmanlike conduct penalty in the last three seasons. And I have to be honest, um, I'd forgotten about that. So anyway, like I, I went into Game Pass and looked and, and um, what he got called for, it was against the Jets, uh, week eight maybe. Um, anyway, they, they called him for like dunking on the goalpost after a touchdown, which like, sure, you don't want him doing it because it's a penalty and everything. We're not talking about like taunting or fighting or, you know, anything that's going to kill a driver or whatever. So um Anyway, Kelsey has now established himself as, I don't want to get into this whole thing, but the best or the second best, whatever, tight end in football, depending on what you think of George Kittle or maybe Rob Gronkowski. Um, And by now, like, I really do believe, um, you know, he is an almost certain Hall of Famer. And he's done this kind of a magic trick, right? Like, he shaved those rough edges away. You know, like that little doubt you had about whether he was about to do something stupid, you know, to cost the Chiefs 15 yards or whatever. And he's done that while maintaining like every bit of that fun and like enormous energy that kind of makes him who he is as a man and as a player. Um, it, it is a remarkable transformation, you guys. It doesn't always happen like this, you know. So then you can talk about away from the field. And you guys have probably heard me say this too much, but like I always say, like, we don't know these guys, you know, the same way you don't even really know your neighbors. Like we don't know their secrets, you know, what they're like in private or like any of that stuff. But I'll tell you, I've, I've seen Travis in a few social settings, you know, cameras not on him, stuff like that. Um, these places where like people just want stuff from him and have nothing to offer him. You know what I mean? And I've just never seen him be anything other than gracious. And I also think it's pretty badass that, you know, the first thing he does when he signs that contract extension last summer is, you know, buy a building that's going to be used by Operation Breakthrough to help change some lives. So, look, again, 
Kelsey is not the first person, like athlete or otherwise, to do cool stuff in Kansas City. And he's not the first to build a Hall of Fame career here. He's not the first to mature from his 20s to 30s. Um, but I guess I challenge you on this. Like, have we ever seen a more complete and positive transformation of an athlete than we've seen with Travis Kelsey in Kansas City? If you've got one, let me know. But I honestly, like, I, I cannot think of one right now. Okay. Before we move on to the rest of the show, I cut that early spiel here because this is now longer and this is where I make my ask. Three asks, and as always, we're still friends if you only do two or one or even zero, but it doesn't hurt to ask, right? Uh, the first, please help support us. Give the Sports Pass a try, a dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. Just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I'll send them to you. The second, please rate and review us. Savannah and I appreciate all the love you've given us already, and I see you and thank you because we see all the five-star ratings you've given us already, but I'm just saying, if you haven't done that, if you haven't always given us a, a rating or review, please, please do it. Uh, really helps us get the word out. Five stars only, <laughs> help us out. Uh, the third, if you want to participate in next week's show, and please do, call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365, or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDLE. All right, guys, uh, I know I'm asking a lot here, but that's how it's going to be. Subscribe to the Sports Pass. Give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast and call in with questions. Okay, quick break, and then we're back with questions. Hey, this is Al from San Antonio. You asked us to call in with our ideas on how the MLB is going to enforce their rule changes. I think they're going to enforce them poorly. Thanks. I'll hang up and listen to the response. There are a lot of things here uh, that are sort of like some combination of like stupid, (laughs) dishonest, counterproductive. uh, And we'll get to those. But for those who might not know, the commissioner's office has directed umpires to begin next week enforcing rules prohibiting pitchers from using foreign substances, particularly, you know, what I'll sort of awkwardly call like grip enhancers, Um, you know, spider tack, sunscreen mixed with rosin, whatever. Look, like nobody, the rules have existed and, you know, nobody's going to have a ton of sympathy for pitchers like now being asked collectively to like follow the rules. But it's just such a baseball thing to be doing it this way. Like major league baseball, they haven't cared about this for decades. You know, like it's essentially been like, you know, jaywalking, except like at least with jaywalking, sometimes you'll get a ticket. You know, nobody has been punished for this stuff in six years. Like MLB cares about this now though. And they're caring about it in a huge hurry uh, because their like poorly planned way to increase game action has gone, you know, like a banana in a tailpipe. Like they're embarrassed they're afraid of losing audience and they don't want to do this in the offseason with the CBA negotiations. So they're basically like panicking and doing it midstream. It's a terrible idea. And, and you know what? Like, I think MLB knows that it's a terrible idea. 
but the people there, they don't think that there's a better choice. Like the whole deal here is about reducing spin rate on pitches because that will take a little gas off velocity, reduce the movement of some pitches, you know, and, and hopefully reduce strikeouts and give hitters a little bit of a more fair chance. But you know how like sometimes people talk about doing the, the right thing for the wrong reasons or the wrong thing for the right reasons or whatever. Like I think here like MLB is sort of doing the right thing for the right reasons, but doing it in a very, very wrong way. Like for, for decades, I was going to say for years, but for decades, MLB has essentially just given like tacit approval to pitchers using certain substances that violate rules. And, you know, the understanding is that, you know, with better control from pitchers, the hitters have less reason to fear, you know, like 95 to the face. And that if everyone is on a level playing field with that stuff, then, you know, like what's the difference? Well, now... The difference is that MLB doesn't like what its product looks like right now, which is fine, understandable, like cool, right? Like neither do a lot of us, but that's why they're doing these experimental rules changes in the minor leagues, you know, promote base stealing, help offense, promote action, you know, discourage the shift, like all sorts of different things. Uh, Some of those are going to work, some won't, but it's great to be thinking outside the box like that and everything but like the thing is like those changes were put in before the season you know like they were put in in the off season and teams knew what to expect like everybody was even and this like with the foreign substances like you're just actively screwing with the product and you know trying to chase a mistake you know trying to chase a mistake made because you didn't know what unintended consequences would be there with another decision where you don't know what the unintended consequences will be And the best case scenario is that this thing is implemented sloppily, chaotically, and to a chorus of justified complaints from managers, coaches, and players. Like that's your best case scenario. It's it's, it's bonkers. Um, And, you know, it reminds me of that old saying, you know, the way you know baseball is a great sport is that people still care about it, even with the idiots in charge. So, um, all right, let's stick with baseball for, for one more question at least. Hey, Sam, Bill and Gardner, just appreciate your thoughts on uh, Dozier and Solaire. Uh, so frustrating uh, watching them game after game try to pull everything outside pitch. They're pulling it, ground ball to the shortstop, either an out or a double play. Um, you feel like uh, Benatendi was running in most cases just because he knew Solaire was going to be grounding to short and to avoid the double play. Uh, what are the coaches saying when they've had success in the past? You can see their hitting pattern. It's been to center and right significantly, and they're doing none of that this year, and they continue to just try to pull everything. With the analytics, I don't get it. Um, what What are you hearing? What What do the coaches think? Um, it, it's perplexing, and it, it's it's very, very hard to watch. We're paying these guys a lot of money. And uh, their struggles have, have been a significant uh, part of the Royals' struggles uh, that they've had of late. So curious about your thoughts. Thanks, Sam. Bye. Uh, yeah, Bill, like I'm seeing the same thing you are. You know, um, those guys are too often trying to pull everything, you know, too often turning a pitch that should be um, and has been in the recent past, by the way, you know, a base hit or even a line drive the other way, especially Dozier. Um, and they're, they're turning those pitches into like pop outs or weak grounders to the pull side. They're just like 
desperate to try to make up for the struggle so quickly. And we've touched on this a little bit before, so I want to make a new point here. Like, I, I think there's some other things going on with both these guys. Like, Solaire, he's playing for money, and I think he wanted a long-term contract, but the Royals did it with Perez instead, and now Solaire is either, like, a little detached now or, or maybe pressing, maybe a combination of the two or something else that I'm not thinking of. I think that stuff matters. Um, with Dozier... That guy is just, he's wound a little tighter than maybe the ideal, the ideal baseball player, you know, like the see it and hit it type of ball player. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I don't know this, but I bet you Hunter Dozier makes his bed every morning and has a way to make the sheets really crisp. You know, I, I, if you got in his car, I don't think you'd see an empty water bottle, a random receipt, like a crumb of anything on the floor. Like that guy is super organized, like very motivated internally. Uh, he puts a lot of pressure on himself to succeed, and those can all be great traits. And and I have no doubt that those are uh, irreplaceable parts of who he is that helped him get to this level. But I also think they can get in the way of a guy trying to get himself like out of a slump. And you know this is at best an oversimplification, and maybe I'm just completely off. Um, I'll, I'll admit that right off the top. But th- that's what I see, you know, um, because that guy. Both of them, they're talented enough to do it at this level. Like we've seen that, but I think we've also we're seeing that they've got a hard time getting out of it when when things are going bad. It's just it's a rotten situation because you know, like I, I think before the season, you would have said that Dozier, Solaire, and Mondesi are three of the four or five most important hitters on the team, and the Royals have basically got nothing from all three. Um, if you if you look just kind of overall through 67 games or whatever so okay um here we go uh this is i guess another little baseball question but again um we're, we're changing course a little bit hey sam this is mark over the park so i was uh just looking at the stands at uh at the royalty games it seems that they are less than i would expect after a after they got in full stadium or full capacity. Um, and the one game that I've been to, I noticed that too. And I just looked at the last seven home games, they've averaged 15,356 fans uh, per game, which is about 1.2 million over a full season. If they had 81 full capacity games at home, which is not a whole lot. Um, so I... I was wondering if you think it's because of what people found something else to do in the meantime and fell out of love of going to the games, which is the best way to watch baseball, baseball, um, the losing streaks. I, I just think that I would expect it to be a lot more than it is. And, uh, and those figures come from tickets sold to, I think, not actual fannies in the seats. Just want to get your opinion on that and, uh, see what you think about, uh, Current attendance, future attendance, et cetera. Thanks. Bye. We're all guessing here, and we all have different ways of looking at these things. You know, like some of us are going to feel like caged animals, right? Like go to every game and every concert and every patio every day. Um, but I think, and, and Mark, you hit on this in the question, like, I think a lot of people just underestimate the power of 14 months of like weirdness and like creating new habits. Like sports went away. And our lives moved on. Sports came back, uh, but without fans. And, you know, that's better than the alternative, but still not as fun, you know, or compelling to watch 
you know, just that that energy that a crowd brings is like sort of a force multiplier, you know, and, and teams have known this for years. Uh, by the way, that's that's why sporting hasn't seriously thought about adding seats, even, you know, like with a record of sellouts. And it's why Kauffman Stadium and Arrowhead Stadium actually lost a little bit of capacity when they renovated, um, you know, SoFi Stadium in L.A., is sort of like the most technologically advanced and you know perhaps i think the most expensive stadium in the world or certainly country and the capacity there is like seventy thousand. that's less than arrowhead you know and and you know and look like we should note right here that that they can expand to like a hundred thousand for a super bowl um or other big events like that but the point is like the attendance game has changed and you know it was changing even before like a pandemic forced us to all like reorder our lives that's a big deal you know, and it's a big deal even for those of us, you know, who are vaccinated and or just comfortable being in crowds again. And it's worth it here to note that a lot of people aren't comfortable with that yet. And there's really no way to know when they will be, if they will be. So I think in some ways, like sports teams are like fishing in smaller lakes now for fans. Um, they've got fewer people to draw from, you know, fewer people willing to spend the money and the time when they can watch on TV or go to the lake or the pool, read a book, whatever other habits they created in the last year. So um, and then, you know, if we want to be specific about the Royals, that's who you're asking about. Like the rhythm of the season just really hasn't matched up. It's been pretty brutal. Like when the crowds were like super limited, that's when they were playing well. And, you know, now that crowds are unlimited, they've lost 11 to 12. So, um, look, I have obvious personal interest in crowds coming back to games, um, you know, or, or at least in people continuing to love sports. But the realist in me thinks that teams and leagues, and I think this is important to the athletes themselves, need to find new ways to sell themselves and, you know, create interest because it's a different world now than when, what you know, what we all became used to. So, um, you know, plus it's a gajillion degrees out right now, which let's hear from Kyle. Hey, Sam, this is Kyle from Newton, Kansas. I'm sure that you saw recently my uh, home course, Sand Creek Station uh, golf course. Great public golf course, by the way, in South Central Kansas. was in the news uh, because two golfers got in a fight during a qualifier uh, event. Just wanted to know uh, what was your uh, – what is your – what's the, what's the spot where you saw a fight happen where you think, I shouldn't see a fight happening here? Uh, and also, this is an open platform to still discuss why 95-degree weather can go kick rocks and why cooler weather is infinitely better. Have a good one, Sam. We'll see you later. I did hear about that fight, um, and, and that is a wild thing. And you're asking me a question about weird places for fights, and maybe this is a common story. Maybe you had the same thing when you were in junior high, but... Um, at my, at my school, like if two kids were going to get into it, like for whatever reason, it was always like, meet me at the church parking lot after school. Uh, is that a normal thing? Like, is that, was that in other places too? Or was my school just the, the weird one? Like, um, and you know what, like at this point, I can't even remember where that church was or like what it looked like. Uh, but I get, it must have been close by because it was just sort of this accepted like octagon, like for early teens to beef. Uh, and I don't remember actually ever going to watch a fight. Um, I think, look, like for me, by the time school was over, I just wanted like a nutty bar and like shoot some hoops or play some Sega. Um, but it just always seemed like such a weird place to fight. Um, also in college one time, I remember there being a fight between two dudes at the student union, which I guess isn't that weird, but it was like at 830 in the morning, <laughs> uh, before class. And I don't know, but isn't that weird? 
just seems like too early in the day to be throwing hands. But um, Kyle, like the other part of your question, I appreciate you. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm recording this on Thursday. The high is 100 and freaking one degrees. And you might be listening to this on Friday when it'll cool all the way down to 99. And I want to be clear about something here. Like nobody here at Team Winter will defend an ice storm. We are not going to defend that awful sort of like freezing rain. And, you know, we're not here to tell you it's awesome to have to like scrape your windshield in 12 degree weather or whatever. But if you're over there with the sociopaths and trying to tell me that 101 degrees in the middle of June and June, like it hasn't even really gotten hot yet. If you're telling me that this is anything other than an atrocious way to get through a day, then what you're really telling me is that I should never listen to you about any topic ever. Like this morning, uh, like I guess humble brag, uh, kid got home from the dentist and wanted to play catch. Um, we were out there for like 15 minutes and not even working hard. And it wasn't even 90 yet at that time of day. And we're both like sweating like pigs. Like I'll tell you this, I would much rather wipe some snow off my windshield in the comfort of a warm coat and gloves then open the door and sit on like the black leather seats that turn my car into an actual torture chamber on days like this. And look, (laughs) here's the clearest way I can put it. Like there's a reason that when people long ago wanted to imagine what literal hell (laughs) must be like, it's all fiery pits and it's hot and probably humid too, but it's definitely not cold. That's what literal hell is. Um, God, I hate these days. Like, I don't even want to go to a swimming pool on a day like this. Get out of here. All right, I'm done. Um, Quick break, then we're back. Okay, guys, let's finish strong. Uh, Royals have a lot of problems right now, right? I don't have to tell you that. Honestly, we could pick just about anything other than Salvador Perez to talk about, uh, you know, what's wrong with the team right now. They basically had a third of their season so far covered by losing streaks of five games or more, which is just an awful thing for a team that's expected to compete. You know what I mean? And and that's made up of so many guys who's won before. But we're going to focus today on the young starting pitching. And, and we're doing that for a lot of reasons. Those guys just have to succeed for the Royals to be what they want to be. And so far, we've seen like mostly good stuff from, from Brady Singer and Chris Bubich, though Singer is pitching through some shoulder discomfort right now, which is always a flashing neon red light. Uh, and, and Bubich has two rough starts in a row now um, going into tonight. But They've just had disastrous results from Daniel Lynch and Jackson Coar. Lynch was sent out after three starts, and Coar's apparently been pushed to the bullpen after two starts. I say apparently because uh, he was warming up in the game on Wednesday, and uh, 
Mike Matheny said he was hoping to get him into the game. So uh, I would not expect him to, uh, to to start to make his next start. Uh, they seem to be wanting to transition him into the bullpen, which could be a good idea. But um, anyway, I, I know a lot of you have been talking about Royals pitching coach Cal Eldred. So uh, I talked to him on the phone this week, and I asked a lot of the questions that I think you guys want answered. So um, anyway, here goes. I, I hope this is interesting for you. The, the first thing I asked uh, Cal is about Coar and Lynch and if he sees any common threads between the struggles of those two guys. Uh, here's what he said. Well, I think that um, <laughs> one, um, this is the major leagues, and where they're coming from is the minor leagues. Totally. And that is that in itself. There's a whole chasm of things that go go along with that, um, from game planning, um, them doing it. You know, obviously most like us, like most teams are trying to do as, as best they can in, in, in triple A and then the minor leagues from top to bottom. As we do here, we obviously can get information quicker and easier and faster and more of it. Um, but the reality is they don't get to face these kind of hitters. Uh, and that's really tough. Uh, that's the, the toughest part. And, then it's handling all that from a mental standpoint. And those are the, those are the big hurdles right there. Yeah. Physically, they're, they're capable. They're stuff. They're capable. And, uh, it's just, and sometimes Sam, I'm going to tell you, a little success goes a long way in gaining that confidence. It's a huge jump these guys are trying to make. And that's not an excuse because it's the same for everybody. Um, but it's just an attempt at an explanation because this stuff is really hard. And the unknowns that exist from getting out guys who aren't quite big league caliber, you know, smaller stadiums, smaller crowds, going from that to seeing Otani in L.A. And, you know, knowing that a changeup that caught a little too much plate can work in Omaha but might get hit 450 feet now. I mean, that, that it's just an enormous jump. And, and then think about all the mental that goes along with that. And there's just, you know, now there's there, there's no real, like, effectual way to practice that without doing it. Dayton Moore, his saying on that is you cannot replicate a major league model in the minor leagues. And that's the stuff that they're talking about. Um, you just got to go do it. So, um, you know, hopefully you heard last week uh, when we had Dayton on, and I, I thought he really did a thorough job explaining how the organization processes these guys uh, from the minors to the majors. But um, anyway, I wanted to ask Cal that same question, too, because, I mean, it's obviously a different perspective, uh, coach, not an executive. So um, anyway, here, here's his answer to basically the same question. You know, like, what is that process like of sort of, you know, the, the business jargon would be onboarding guys, uh, you know, from the minor leagues to the to the major leagues. Here's what he said. Yeah, the great thing is, is between Dane Johnson, our AAA pitching coach, Paul Gibson, who's, um, you know, head of our pitching development, and then you go from there and all the way down through uh, our minor league pitching coaches who have had these players, including our managers and other coaches, listening to them about, you know, you know these these kids' personalities, their experiences with them. I can't get I, I can't get enough of it. Um, and so that helps a lot, but there's nothing like spending time with them yeah. and watching them, uh, to your point. And there's one thing, watch them in spring training or a AAA video or, you know, uh, that's, that's one thing. But just like they're making adjustments and getting their feet wet here, now it's time to watch them and what they're doing here. And yeah. that just takes, that takes some time and, um, you take, you know, I think Chris Bubich is a perfect example. He's had some really good games. He was really good for 
a nice extended period of time. He's had some rougher innings. And so now how do we react to that? How do we handle that? So that's, that's, you know, that I'm just using Chris as, as one example. Um, and sometimes it is, you gotta go back and work on some of the things, um, like Daniel Lynch is right now and he'll get it, you know, he'll, and that's my opinion. Uh, you know, he get it, he'll get it. He's a smart kid. He works his tail off and, uh, um, and he has great stuff. So I've got all the confidence in the world, uh, in these kids because, They've got they've got really good stuff, and that you don't get these opportunities if you don't. The, the speed of the game is just so much faster, and and I, you hear that a lot, right? Like in all sports, um, you know, the NFL is faster than college, and the NFL playoffs are faster than the regular season, and you know, guys going from MLS to a European league have to adjust to the faster speed, on and on and on. But uh, it really is true, and and I think what they mean in baseball is not just like the pitches are faster, right, and the runners are faster, but like you know, the, the margins are tighter. You know, and where you can get away with a pitch in Omaha, um, it's going to get smashed in Kansas City. And also, these guys are human, and no pitcher has perfect mechanics all the time, right? But in the big leagues, the pitchers have to recognize when they get out of their delivery sooner than in the minor leagues, and they need to fix it on their own before the pitching coach has to, you know, burn a mound visit. And they have to make all these fixes on the fly, like in real time, on a tighter deadline, because the hitters are so much better. So. Anyway, um, here's an exchange Cal and I had about that after I asked if, if Coar had some of these same mechanical tweaks um, that he had to fix on the fly in Omaha that he's talked about here. Oh, I think that goes, yeah, that goes without saying. I mean, there's no question. I mean, just because they're in the minor leagues and, and they're not facing a major league lineup doesn't mean they're not going to get out of their delivery at times. Um, or Is it just harder to, to see because he's still having success? I'm sorry to interrupt, but... Um, no, our coaches got it. I mean, yeah. they, they see it. There's no doubt. They see it and they get on them right away about it. So, um, that it's something that they see. Uh, they may get away with it a little bit. Um, but, um, and sometimes they don't, but it's, it's, you know, what I know is it's, it's what's being demanded of them is to, um, repeat it correctly, you know, and Jackson knows that. Yeah. Is, is the difference in, and again, I, I understand that I'm oversimplifying, but um, of just the jump minor leagues to the big leagues and the margins are so much smaller. And then if you make a pitch that might work in, in Omaha, but doesn't work here, um, then dealing with the mental. I mean, is, is that an oversimplification of what we're dealing with? Well, here, here's, here's the, the bottom, the bottom line is there's major league quality pitches. And that's what they're we're we're trying to make sure that they're doing that at the minor league level. And that's what you're trying to evaluate. Are their pitches major league level pitches? And so when they get here, it's just continuing to repeat those major league level pitches. And sometimes that's a you know, with some of the extra stuff going on, there may be a little bit more might be a little more wound up doing it, but it's uh um, that they know that's what they need to do, and so that's what we're that's the standard we try to hold them to. Yeah, because um, those 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 pitches that they are making that are you know that are good quality pitches there they work here. You just got it's it's the the trick is to get them to be able to do it here. 
So that's where we're at right now. Um, I, I hope you got something from that. Um, I know I did. I'm glad that I was able to talk to Cal. Um, and you know what? Like, not for nothing, but I just want to make one more point here. Um, Cal and I don't know each other well. You know, we've talked a few times, like enough to say hi or whatever. But, you know, this wasn't a call he took because of some like longtime personal relationship. You know what I mean? And and I got the feeling that he really wanted to do this because he's not stupid. Like he, he knows what's being said. And I'm sure he thinks a lot of it is misguided. And he wanted to sort of put a message out uh, from his side about what's happening with him in the pictures. And, you know, this is the kind of thing we probably would have gotten sooner. And uh, I know we would have gotten it sooner and perhaps deeper uh, with normal media access. And, and I'm not trying to get on a tangent here, do the, like the sports writer wine thing. But, you know, when people like me talk about, you know, fans missing out when access is diminished, that's what we mean. You know, it, it's just impossible for you to get the same information or understanding about the teams you care about when you don't have us. And I'm and I, when I say us, I mean like the media, at least at least the ones worth following, right? Like, um, you know, I think we think of ourselves as like representatives of your interests. And when we're not able to get that information, like, the information is just a lot clearer and plentiful when we're able to talk to these people. Uh, that's all we mean. So, okay, that's it. Soapbox gone. Uh, and that's the show. Uh, I appreciate all of you for listening. I hope we're worth your time. And one more time, please reach out to me if you can help support us with the Sports Pass. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks to everyone who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Uh, Big thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life. We'll be back next week. Uh, Have a great weekend. Be kind.